He's a doctor and he keeps people healthy. She's a psychologist and she keeps people happy. And together we are Constantly Constantly Hungry. Hello and welcome to the first episode of our new podcast. My name's Tolkien and I'm a junior doctor working in West Yorkshire and here's my beautiful wife Soline who is... Hello, I'm Soline and I'm a clinical psychologist in training. Perfect and we've got two of our guests here today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. yeah sure. So I'm Sean, I work as a radiographer and I work within healthcare but I'm also highly interested in mental health <clears throat> and just understanding mindset and understanding just human cognition in general. So, yeah. Hi, yeah, it's great to be here. My name's Itty. I'm working in healthcare as well. I work as an application specialist for medical imaging equipment. And I've had a previous experience as working as a radiographer in the hospital. So quite in the healthcare realm. And I'm very passionate about psychology and mental health. Big advocate for that as well. So it's great to be here. Perfect. Thank you, guys. So it's it's great to have you here as well. So thanks for coming and thanks for bearing with us with our technological blips this this evening. <laughs> um, so just cracking straight onto the topic for tonight. So we're talking about obesity um, and how it affects uh, the population in the country, how it affects health and potentially some mental health background on on obesity as well. Now this all started when I was just chatting to Sean on Instagram and we were having a good conversation. And I was like, we just need to talk about this properly at some point. So let's just get it on a bloody podcast um so just a few background things when it comes to obesity so just so we're all on the same page um the world health organization suggests someone is overweight when their body mass index is over 25 and someone is obese when their body mass index is over 30. now body mass index is just a calculation based off your height and your weight so it's a semi useful indicator of someone who's got a lot of weight on board but it can be a little bit rubbish for people who have more muscular weight rather than fat weight but that's a general term it, it applies to most people um in the uk in 2018 it was estimated that were that 63 percent of the adult population were either overweight or obese now from a physical health perspective one of the big problems with this is that obesity is associated with many different uh risk factors for health so Some of the main ones that we talk about a lot are cardiovascular health. So that's things related to your heart and the way blood gets pumped around your body. Um, Diabetes, that's a big topic that we can briefly touch on soon as well. And also things like cancer and arthritis. Um, Cancer, it's a lot of these risks are seen as a correlation. So basically we see that people who have got more weight on board do suffer from these consequences, but we don't know exactly why. Um, so basically, we just wanted to touch on obesity as an issue in, in the UK um, with such a high population statistic. So I don't know if you guys have got any thoughts just talking about the numbers at all. I have some thoughts, but I don't know if you want to jump in there, Celine. I think the key thing for me is this idea of like how obsessed we are with BMI. And I think that that's wrong. I think there's so many problems with BMI. Um not least of all the fact that it was actually not even intended for use for individuals. So it was created in the mid 1800s by a mathematician. um, And it really just doesn't do a very good job of giving us a good picture of someone's health. So I think that's the first thing I really wanted to pick up on. Mm -hmm. Um, As well as a lot of um, issues I want to discuss today in relation to obesity and mental health. But I think we'll touch on that a little bit later. But guess my my first thing is just to go in and just say actually BMI is a bit of a 
problematic concept to begin with. Should we briefly touch on BMI as, as, as a group? So Sean, have you got any opinions on BMI at all? Yeah, so as Celine just said there, I think we obviously need to adapt a more holistic approach to health. Obviously, that's quite unilateral in, it, in, it, in its approach. And there's so many flaws that could be derived from that. However, I'll probably just then to go to talk on the figures just surrounding what you were talking about earlier. So I've just got some figures that it costs the NHS about nine billion per year. Um, and obviously with everything being COVID right now, I'll probably just touch on the fact that there's been some studies suggesting that increases the risk of uh, COVID death by about 48%. Mm -hmm. And it's also linked that a lot of the more overweight countries, I think Papua New Guinea being the leading one, is that the COVID death rates are about 0 0.12 per 100,000. And with the population being about 52% overweight, I think that was the highest end there. Um, and yeah, just obesity is also linked to about 55% more depression. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these are all just, you know, statistics that are <coughs> very easy to just throw out there. There's a yep. number of factors influencing these, by the way. And, you know, the studies themselves can be limiting. So just bear that in mind when I'm throwing these out. I don't, you know, I wouldn't just say all these figures and just believe into what I'm saying without, you know, talking more around mm -hmm. it. They're just things, they're just more points of consideration rather than being definite attitudes or beliefs to be adopted from them. Um, yeah, and exercise, again, just, you know, actually, sorry, I'll go on to exercise after. They were just some figures surrounding yeah. obesity itself, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we've highlighted, oh, sorry, Eti, carry on. Oh, yeah, yeah, so with uh, how we've just been talking about BMI, I'd have to agree with, with what's been said here. And BMI is a bit of a, just a ballpark figure that mm -hmm. kind of, we can use and it's very different applicable we have to look into everyone's life as an individual so if you look at athletes they usually go into the overweight category just because they've got more muscle mass which is giving them the more weight and muscle weighs more than fat so if they've got a lot more muscle mass and and we're using that with their height and then we're calculating the bmi they're going to go into the overweight category but then an athlete would necessarily they'd be more healthier than, than someone who's got that weight on them but with fat instead mm -hmm. so i think rather than looking at the bmi it's looking at the the body fat ratio in that respect potentially i would just add as well um i totally agree but fat in itself isn't necessarily problematic i think it's a naturally existing body size and bodies are going to range in what they look like and what their size is anyway. So in itself, I don't think fat is necessarily something to be worrying like too much about in terms of, oh, this is a disease, this is unhealthy. Obviously, we're talking about something here where it's you're at a very like larger end of the spectrum. Um, but I think even if everyone was eating healthy and exercising regularly, I think it's quite dehumanizing. Um, and it promotes weight stigmatizing behaviors to be thinking so much about fat in in a way that's like fat is bad. So just yeah, I'd add I think that. Just just to cover BMI quickly, just from what you guys have been talking about, it sounds like BMI itself doesn't sound like it's a really good way to measure how it's going to reflect to your health. Um, and there's other things at play. Um, so numbers can't always be something to guide by in terms of what it's going to have as an outcome on your health, particularly when we talk about figures of fat and things like that. There's other things at play. 
So I think we're just thinking that BMI doesn't correlate always with good health or bad health. It's, it's probably That's right, yeah. Yeah, fine. Um, I just wanted to touch on what Sean was talking about in terms of statistics, things like the um, obesity causing uh, costing the NHS about $9 billion. just wanted to briefly touch on that, if that's okay, um, just as to why some of the causes might be. So I think just going back to the physical health complications of obesity, it can result in things like high blood pressure that has a knock-on effect on your heart, and that can result in things like uh, heart attacks, strokes, and stuff like that. And I think that's where a lot of the cost comes from. I don't know if there's anything else you've got to add from, from that perspective. Sean? Um, so... I haven't got anything in terms of <clears throat> statistics and numbers to, to offer you there because mm -hmm. I was thinking perhaps my approach was more holistic like Celine's yep. um, yep. to touch on the mental health side of things but yeah I would just say you know add on to what you've just said there Talkeen which is it is just looking after all the symptoms and side effects basically of what obesity then leads to um, so as you said treating the heart disease treating diabetes, treating things like, you know, your cancers and other diseases that all seem to have higher risk factors from stemming from the obesity. So yeah, just general information really. Yeah, fine. I think something you've touched on there is talking about treating diabetes and treating the heart problems and stuff like that. I think sometimes I feel we've got things a little bit backwards and I think this will lead nicely into when we start talking about the causes of obesity. I think as a medical system, we tend to treat the um, the problems that come once obesity has set in, but it feels like we don't do much about considering the causes of obesity in the first place. So as a doctor, we often prescribe medications for someone's high blood pressure, which might have been contributed by their increased weight over the last 10 years, but we don't actually think about what we could do to prevent the need for that blood pressure medication in the first place. So I don't know if you think that leads on nicely into the causes of obesity, because I think personally from coming from medical school and stuff like that, we don't touch into the prevention of it at all and it might surprise some to, for me to say that in, in the entirety of the five years in medical school I only had one lecture on nutrition and that was an hour long and that's probably more than uh, that's probably less than what a lot of normal people are now studying nutrition about if, if, if you get what I mean or what you see online and stuff um, which I think is appalling having one, one hour in the entirety of medical school on something that could prevent nine billion pounds worth of cost and then prevent loss of life and, and things like that so I think because Sean and Celine, you're coming from a mental health perspective today. I think it might be worth talking about that in terms of causes of obesity. If you if you want to take a lead on that now, Celine, and go from there. Gosh, there's like so much I want to say about this. <laughs> stop, stop me if I go on for too long. But I, I think firstly, yeah, your your um point about prevention and early intervention is so important because we would be like saving so much money if we didn't let people get to the point in the first place where there are such high risk of other more serious conditions um so i think that's so key and it's something that we're notoriously bad at in the uk um i guess in terms of the causes of things like obesity um what we know from the literature is that one of the biggest well one of the really major causes of obesity is things like stress um and I was reading a paper earlier and it was really interesting the number of ways that stress can impact the body and a person's behaviour in terms of their eating. So basically what happens when you get stressed, particularly over a long period of time, 
you get this activation of um, like your threat response, you get an activation for your stress system. Um, and what that does is it can reduce the activity in your prefrontal cortex, which is in the brain. Um, and that's basically responsible, responsible for your planning and your decision making. So actually people who have lots of stress um, may find that they eat even when they aren't hungry and they have a lower ability to regulate their diet and their eating behaviour. Um, there's also disruptions to the way that the brain processes rewards. So we all get reward from eating in the sense that it satisfies a core need that we all have. Um, at the same time, sometimes we eat for pleasure. And what happens when you have your stress activated a lot of the time is that you start to associate food with um, like increased reward. So particularly foods that are high in fat and high in sugar, we know give us that real like boost of serotonin and things like that. And so what can happen is if people have very stressful life, they can resort to foods like that. Um, and I've done a little bit of reading on emotional eating as well, but I might come to that later. Um, there's also evidence about sort of like the changes to your hormones, which are responsible for regulating your appetite. So again, stress can make it harder for you to know when you're full, um, which obviously means you're going to have an increased appetite. Um, it reduces your sleep quality. So um, when you have less sleep, it makes you feel more tired, makes you feel more hungry. You can see how there's just so many different ways that actually stress can impact on different parts of your life that then impact your eating behaviour. So I think for me, that's a key thing. Yeah, yeah. To touch on what Celine just said there, I think it is about fundamentally the beliefs we formed as children. You know, we all form beliefs from our parents, essentially, or our caregivers, whoever's the ones that are providing, obviously, our upbringing. And well, there's a number of factors, but first I'll just touch on is that one way to meet our needs underneath everything else is, you know, one of our needs might be, I think one of the core fundamental needs of humans is, you know, just a sense of certainty, a sense of safety. So what we can do is then, you know, eat just to meet that need for comfort, meet that need for safety, meet that need for security. And it is about fundamentally, how we were raised as children from the ages of zero to seven really is is where we well where they believe is that we form most of our values most of our core beliefs most of our perceptions of the world and how we see it and you know i think most people don't re-examine their beliefs around health they don't re-examine their like philosophies around life in general because you know they've learned them the kind of setting and you know, I think it was, I think it was Buddha that said, you know, we shape our own reality. But what I heard from Gabo Mate is that what Buddha missed is that actually our reality shapes us first. So then it's then up to us to take accountable accountability and then create our own reality. So yeah, I don't know if you wanted to touch on. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to agree with that. So like when you <clears throat> come into this earth as an infant, as a baby, you know, you're very much, you don't know what the environment's going to be like and your prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed. So you haven't got the reasoning part of the brain. You don't understand a few things. So when you, when you're still a child, 
you're still trying to make you know navigate the reality and if you're if you're brought into a really stressful environment if the mother's stressed or the parent or the father's stressed or the parenting figures are stressed the child can inherently feel this feel this energy and pick this up and then from the child so this is a, a baby that can't escape the stress you know they can't use their body yet they can't move away from it they can't crawl away and go over there they can't communicate yet so as the brain's developing the brain in the developing stages forms um kind of it's hardwired that oh this stress to cope with it i can either tune out or i can do certain things and I think I fundamentally believe that like it comes a lot from the developing stages early on in life that kind of it writes the the script of how you're going to deal with stress later on. So if you've found stress uh, stress relief in other sources like just tuning out or playing in a corner by yourself or or, or whatever to escape any traumatic experiences that you know a child might have experienced, um, then this can lead on into your adult life and it's hardwired because it's come from the point of where your your brain's still developing and then when you're older it can cause problems so you can be eating for comfort you know to gain a sense of certainty whereas as a child you know in the in the short term to get away from that stress it would have been beneficial but in the long term it can cause issues and that, that's my little intake and we'll add on from what Sean's just said yeah. there. <clears throat> so just just taking away from, from what you guys were talking about you were talking about you know needs being needed to be satisfied uh, and, and we know that's something that's important in in such early stages of life um, and, and you're suggesting that that could be filled in by the the effects of food feeling that comfort from there. I'm not very psychologically minded and I'm not taught that way so Celine I don't know if you've got any more remarks on that at all. Yeah, I mean, it's if you think about it as a baby, your core need is to be fed, right? You probably got a few more core needs, but let's think about it in terms of food. Either you have food or you don't. Either your mum feeds you or she doesn't. Um, if we're thinking in a very sort of um, patriarchal kind of way. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have that food, you don't have the resource or the way, uh, way to manipulate your body to go and get food for yourself. So it's food or death. So to be honest, as a baby, food is absolutely crucial in soothing you, because if you don't have that, you know, the alternative is you're going to die. Right. Sounds really like horrible, but, you know, that's what it that's what it is, if you put yeah. it bluntly. Um, and so <clears throat> when you think about it like that, you can understand why people have this association of comfort with food. Food and emotions are like linked. There's there's no two ways about that. Um, and people use food in lots of different ways in adulthood. So, you know, they might celebrate with going out for a meal. They might commiserate things um, or, you know, eat something to feel better after a long day or a hard day. And for most people, that's fine. But I guess it becomes problematic when you're frequently and regularly doing that and you're doing it to um, sort of mask your negative emotions or or comfort or distraction from those emotions so that's when it becomes problematic but actually most people have a, an emotional association with food and, and that's normal the other thing that I just really wanted to touch on is how crucial it is then from an early age 
for kids to be um, encouraged to, you know, make healthy choices when it comes to food. Um, and it makes me think about social inequalities because actually um, what we know is that a lot of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to be obese. And so again, it goes back to that prevention. Like we need to be encouraging people to be making healthier choices. Another thing I wanted to quickly ask you about with, with your experience, Celine, is um, if, if we are suggesting that potentially if you've got 68% of the population that are overweight or obese and a large proportion of this potentially could be due to what people have gone through with their childhood upbringing, are we suggesting there's a large proportion of people who have got some level of traumatic experiences in the past or is it something that's actually relatively normal to use as, as comfort as comfort or, or need satisfaction if you get what I mean? Is that something people could resonate with at home who's listening and, and it's okay? Like, what, what are we suggesting there? I think trauma is a really loaded term and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people don't identify with it. But what I would say is that the majority of people at some point in their life will experience some form of adversity. Mm -hmm. I think adversity is a bit more of a palatable word. I'm not sure why that is, um, but absolutely, I think you know most people go through adversity that's a normal part of the human condition it's an unfortunate part of the human condition but it happens um and a lot of people also have trauma and identify with trauma trauma in itself doesn't necessarily dictate how you're going to respond to eating habits lots of people go through trauma and have healthy eating habits um, and again it just goes back to that idea of what is this about you know am i Am I eating to comfort myself because I don't know how else to do so? Am I eating when I'm not even hungry because, you know, there's nothing else that will fill that void? Or is it, you know, I'm eating to celebrate my birthday with my friends or I'm eating because I'm on a date and, you know, I want to go out for a meal. That, you know, that's normal and healthy. That's understandable. It's not something we want to pathologize. Um, so it always comes back to, for me, it's all about balance. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to that quickly and touch upon the fact that, you know, Selena's right that it's all about balance and it's it could be a number of things like underneath all that, I believe that it's all about understanding emotions and emotional intelligence, because I think, you know, if you were to fully understand the human psyche, if you were to fully understand yourself and, you know, what all your emotions mean, then what you could do is take action upon that. Because if you were to understand that your emotions and say negative emotions aren't necessarily um, negative, they're just your emotions are actually used to give you a message. Emotions are emotional messages and that's why we have them. This is my belief. And this is something I've heard from Tony Robbins and a few other speakers and, and a few other books now. And these emotions, for example, say if we have guilt, Okay, guilt can quite simply just mean that we violate our own standards, we violate our own values. But then leading on from that is that we could actually have completely skewed values and standards of ourselves in the first place, you know, that are stemmed from low self esteem, confidence issues, and, you know, and again, to touch upon, you know, things like that, it's self esteem and confidence issues. These are all perceptions and things that we formed because of a lack of emotional intelligence. And this is generational as well we passed down from the parents um, because they simply not understood themselves and then they'll be doing a number of behaviours and passing on a number of things onto the children and like Celine said 
trauma, you know, is a bit of a loaded word, so it is hard to associate with. However, trauma isn't necessarily what happens to us, but what doesn't happen to us. So, for example, a kid doesn't have to be sexually abused to have gone through trauma. What can happen is actually just neglect is a form of trauma. I wanted to just say really that underneath everything is just understanding the emotions and being in touch with what it is to be a human, you know, understanding, you know, using that intuition, use it, being able to self-regulate through those emotions. And like I said, just if we were to understand them, then we would actually be able to pass that on to the next generation. So instead of kids, you know, feeling right this one thing happened you know this say this one trauma happened this one uh, what was the uh, word you used there Celine what was I used the word adversity adversity okay yeah thank you so if we were to go through adversity as children then we would be able to recognize okay what's happened right I've been hurt right that hurt doesn't necessarily means the thing that I associate with meaning because you know a lot of the times when we're hurt as children that we can attach the meaning to that I'm not worthy I'm not good enough I'm not good looking enough I'm not x literally input whatever you would like to in that right and the thing is with our brains is that we actually have a negative bias so we always tend to think oh sorry I don't say always I need to watch my language sometimes again <laughs> we often try we often think that things have a negative meaning you know someone might look at us and, and we'll think god what are they laughing at what's wrong with me Is something on my face you know we always you know let the ego talk because within our world we're the most important thing so then we'll let that negative bias also latch onto our ego and then before you know it we've you know we formed a belief that you know we're not good looking enough someone's laughing at us because they think we're stupid or something negative you know whatever that may be and then that leads to having you know, your low self-esteem, your low confidence, you know, other issues. And so, yeah, underpinning everything, I believe, is just the emotional intelligence and understanding that. So, so yeah. Anyone... I'd, yeah, I'd quite like to add on to that. So going from what you've said and how we've spoke about growing up as a child, particularly in the early stages, and that lack of love or or what the child needs and, and if they're not receiving what they need, how that can be quite stressful and literally traumatic for the child. Yeah. So a child needs someone, uh, a, um, a parent figure to invest in loving them and looking after them. If nobody's invested in looking after the child, then how am I gonna survive? So the, the child needs that connection between a parental figure, whether it's their biological or, or not. So they need that connection. And then once they've got that connection, so they're constantly wanting that, that love. And now if a parent just leaves their child and, and walks off, we've seen it. We've all seen it with young siblings or, or we've seen it with nieces and nephews or, or friends who have got kids. Like if they just leave their child and walk off, the kid literally freaks out. They'll start crying. I mean, if they don't know that they're coming back, if they're in their own house, they understand the environment, then they're quite comfortable and they're absolutely fine. But if you leave the child in, in an environment they don't know and you just move away slightly, they'll, they'll, they'll literally be a bit scared because they don't know what's going on. They don't know whether you're coming back or not. Now, that's quite traumatic for the, for the child. And 
they're going through this traumatic experience and they're thinking, am I going to get that love or, or something? And, and let's say now we add in the parent who is who's slightly stressed one day, has a little bad day at work. The, the child maybe cries and the parent just goes, ah, what are you doing? Why are you crying? And in an instant, that, care, that, that child gets scared. He's like, whoa, I've never got that reaction from my parent. I've never heard that voice. I've never seen that face expression. <gasps> What's going on? And going back to the prefrontal cortex that isn't developed yet, they start to think, oh, I've done something wrong. There's something wrong with me because if this person is invested in loving me and caring for me, they wouldn't scare me. They wouldn't treat me like this. So for the child, they're like, okay, I'm now afraid. They, you know, I've obviously done something to, to, for the parent to behave like this towards me. And in an instant, they form a belief. And the child then goes, oh, something's wrong with me. So to get the, to get the parent's attention, now I need to behave a certain way. And whether I start acting up or I start throwing tantrums and get attention or doing whatever, the kid will develop a, a way of, of getting that attention, which it craves. So going further on into life, now when it's learned that, okay, I can't be who I inherently am, myself, my authentic self, I need to be a certain way to gain attention. This starts taking us away, disassociates us from who we really are, which is stressful because if you're 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 putting on an act, you're you're always being someone who you're not really deep down inside. And that you was told to be different when you was a child because you formed that belief. So then later on in life, you're having to put this act always to be someone to always prove something to someone to, you know, you know how Sean was saying, like. How am I looking in this moment? You know, are they are they looking at me? Am I, you know, am I good enough in this moment? Do I look good enough? Do I behave good enough? Am I strong enough or, or anything like this? And it and then you're always putting on this front, which isn't really your authentic self, which is stressful. And then not understanding the emotions and not being able to regulate the stress, we we go to different coping mechanisms, which could be food, which could be um drugs it could be gambling it could be anything that's going to try to give you some dopamine to to make you feel good in the short term yeah okay thanks guys it's, it's really interesting stuff um i guess my next question just based off that i think this is quite a juicy topic actually we've, we've had a nice chat about it actually is and i think um my next question is how would we go about actually trying to help people who might have come from from this situation from an obesity standpoint i think sean started talking about emotional intelligence and becoming aware that this has happened in the past so lean from your perspective have there been any encounters at, at work or anything like that that you've you could suggest could be useful in these cases and i don't mean for, for the lay person maybe just going forward as, as a country really from this perspective yeah again i think i'm going to keep on saying it it's all about prevention and early intervention Part of that is to do with educating people about, you know, nutritional choices. But part of that is about educating people about emotional health. So we have physical health um, lessons in school, that's standard. But what really baffles me is that we don't have the same equivalent for emotional health. Um, and the government has an initiative in place. Um, I think it's been halted a little bit by COVID. But the idea was that by the end of this year, 
that we're supposed to have mental health support teams in schools, in all schools in the UK. Um, and I think that that's such a good step forwards in the right direction. It's all about um, getting to um, help young people at an earlier stage so that they don't get to the point where they've developed serious mental health problems, where they don't you know, know how to cope with their stress. And these are, you know, it's only six sessions or so that you would do with a person, but in those six sessions, you can teach them skills they can take forward in life. So I think that's a big part of it, just um, helping to support people's mental health from a much earlier age, from a prevention standpoint, as opposed to a reactive standpoint where they've already gone through so much hardship and they've already developed so many unhelpful habits. Do we think as, as a group that would be enough to try and start helping things? Um, or do you think we need more? Sean, what do you reckon? Yeah, so just to touch on what you've just said there, I think that it is just within our system, we would need more education surrounding mental health. And just to understand fundamentally, that mental health underpins our society, underpins, it underpins the human civilization in, in general, because it underpins everything we do. You know, look at music artists, for example, you know, a lot of the greatest musicians were the ones that have suffered the most. And even it, that, you know, leads into sports. Mike Tyson, for example, you know, he says he was the most ferocious because he was the most scared. He says, he talks about how he was so scared of everyone and everything that his way of coping with that and his way of controlling the situation was to actually become the most ferocious, the most scary, the, you know, the worst, like basically the hardest boxer you've ever seen, right? So that was actually a coping mechanism to fear. So, you know, if you can understand that a lot of destructive behaviors and a lot of things that we do come from this emotional, you know, poor emotional intelligence, poor self-regulation, you know, for example, the ego always tries to unconsciously drive our behavior, uh, even if we're not aware of it, which can cause a lot of pain and suffering and beliefs, you know, that this is coming from an external source, when really this is coming from an internal source. You know, I'll give you an example. So you might think that you would judge others in an attempt to avoid your own pain, you know, or you might eat to avoid your own pain. But what you can actually do is say that you, you know, you're able to be non-judgmental and you can witness yourself from a loving awareness and understand that, you know, your past is not your future and understand that you are not your past behaviours. So if we can, first of all, be taught that in schools from a young age or have our parents be taught that so we can be taught it from even zero to two before we even go into schools, you know, and then what we can do is not have to patch the problem after, you know, pat, you know, what is it? Prevention is better than the cure. You know, we won't, we won't have to cure from these mental health aspects, you know. Let's look at, you know, say, even on the flip side of obesity is anorexia, okay? You go onto the NHS website, right? What does it say that anorexia is caused from? You know, it comes from anxiety, low self-esteem, and, you know, and which which comes from, you know, potential traumatic events like say being sexually abused or even on the flip side of thing, you know, not not giving the correct attention that you were given. There's a number of other reasons, by the way, for that, but there are some of the reasons, and it seems to affect 
women, um, teenage women the most. And, you know, that being said, it's because it seems to me the connection I'm drawing from this is it for, they form a belief about themselves. They form beliefs about the world and they use not eating as a coping mechanism um, because they form a belief that they're not um they're they're too fat or they're not skinny enough and so underpinning all that again i believe is the same thing is understanding you know your beliefs understanding your human needs understanding brain and cognition in general is that it's always trying to protect you the brain will always try to stay safe and one way of staying safe you know underneath all the um all the medical talk and um, you know that's not my field but underneath staying safe is eating and you know comforting yourself because it gives a security i was reading a study that looked at obesity from the point of does mental health cause obesity or does obesity cause mental health and you know i don't think the answer is one or the other i don't think there's any duality there i think they're both part and parcel with each other and i think you know what causes obesity actually is just a poor understanding you know poor as i said before poor emotional regulation i just want to touch on one of the points that you made there and i think it's so important that you talked about um how the outside world can also influence people so i think there's something to be said about people developing emotional regulation skills and at the same time the outside world needs to change too so the messages we get in the media for example um, the messages we get from politicians about, you know, what's okay, what's not okay, what's acceptable, what's unhealthy, these sorts of things need to change as well. And alongside that, one of the biggest um, contributors as well to things like obesity is things like social inequality. So again, not just to obesity, actually, but to mental health difficulties, social inequalities are one of the biggest risk factors and so we need to be developing a society that's more equal more fair there's more opportunities for social mobility there's more um access to resources for people from poorer areas i think that's something we're really lacking let me just sorry let me just touch upon yeah. that actually real, real quick because there's a point you said um the social stigma yes i think is absolutely necessary is that you know when we are in an environment that's non-judgmental, we're actually able to heal ourselves much better because we're, whilst we're in the state of judgment, we're not actually able to heal in the, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing uh, track of my words here, but basically judgment and shame, judgment will lead to shaming ourselves. And whilst we're in that cycle of shaming ourselves, we find it very, very difficult to heal from the pain. So, yeah, I think the social stigma surrounding of you know weight and obesity is 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 definitely a topic for consideration. However, on the flip side of that, you know, I do think that it's not it's 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 not good to glorify, say, body positivity through obesity, but at the same time, not judge people with uh, not judge people who are obese. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of finding that balance between not making it a positive and great thing but also whilst not judging it and, me and making it out to you know demonizing them at the same time i don't know if anyone wants to touch on anything i just said there. yeah i, I yes yeah, so i completely agree with um the dialogue that's going across this uh this chat right now and moving forward 
I feel like we need to, there's a culture around ostracizing people who are obese or, you know, singling them out. And I think that needs to change. Mm -hmm. So it's not only, I think, of course, education is key to prevention, but we are here and we already have a high rate of obesity. I think it's now um, on the NHS website, it says something like one in four adults are estimated to be obese in the UK. Now that's a crazy statistics. You know, 25% of the population is estimated to be obese. And, you know, as, as adults. And then it says something like um, one in five children from the ages of 10 to 11 are, are estimated to be obese. So I think, in, instead of singling these people out or, you know, singling people who are obese out and ostracizing them, we should change our acceptance level of, of, of it. So like, for instance, if we change slightly topic towards um, addiction. Now, let's say someone is addicted to crystal meth or coke or something like that. And then there's someone who's addicted to smoking, you know, you'd say, oh, the crystal meth one, oh, that's crazy, that's crazy. But how is that any different to the addiction of the person who's addicted to smoking? You know, they're still addicted to this, whatever they're doing, the behavior they're doing, whether it's smoking, mm -hmm. whether it's eating, whether it's uh, gambling or anything. So, you know, it comes down to our acceptance. Why would we accept one person's um, addiction in this instance over another person's. So if another person's addicted to the eating for comfort or, or anything, why are we, you know, not accepting that? Why are we ostracizing them? And then there's a study that was done on, um, it was actually done on monkeys. And the monkeys that were, they had these monkeys that were isolated and their dopamine receptors would be reduced. So for them to just get the normal level of enjoyment, they would need more of whatever they're doing. So whether that's just having maybe one cookie or maybe they need a full packet just to feel the normal level, just to get that dopamine. And then when they put that monkey who had been isolated into a social group and that monkey was accepted in the social group and they got along, their dopamine receptors would return back to normal levels. However, if that monkey was bullied or ostracized for not being the way the society wanted them to be, then the dopamine receptors wouldn't return back to normal and they would stay at the at the level they were before, which was lower. So, you know, if we're, if we're singling people out who are obese and, you know, there is a culture of, you know, in schools, kids get bullied and even into adult life, people can be bullied and things, then they're being singled out, then they may not develop back to normal dopamine receptors and they mean you know it's, it's difficult for them to come out of this cycle so i feel like yes we want to educate um around the whole topics about nutrition and emotional regulation but we also want to change the culture and have more of an acceptance towards these people who are obese and an understanding towards them not to single them out to, but to accept them and fundamentally i think whether it's obesity or any other disease or anything, there's a message in there. So with the obese, the excess fat, let's say, in this case, it's not there as an enemy. It's there as a friend to tell you something. And in that case, it's telling you something's not working in your system. Like, like as in the way you're living right now isn't right. 
or not right or wrong, but it isn't working and the, the, the way it's getting piled on. So the message is in there. So I, I feel like it's, it's, it's your friend. It's there to tell you something, which in this case, it's telling you to, you know, we want to emotionally regulate ourselves a bit better, eat more nutritional, nutritional food. We want to exercise more. And then the message is that, that the weight's there to basically fundamentally tell us. I think the, the difficulty once once the weight is on is there's adipose tissue, so fat tissue itself is, is essentially an organ, just like your skin's an organ, just like your heart's your organ. The, yeah. the, the cells themselves have their own signaling mechanism. And one of the things that we do understand with, with adipose and excess amounts of fat is it releases its own hormones. And some of that is related to appetite. And we find that as you gain more weight, your appetite struggles to become suppressed so basically if if you're a, a, a normal weight or you're not obese you're, you're within a normal range your fat cells actually produce a hormone called leptin which suppresses your appetite so just naturally thinking about it as you're gaining fat your body is like we don't need this so it suppresses your appetite so you don't pile more on because there's health benefit, there's health risk to it but you get to a point where when you have excess amounts of fat it actually down you get resistant to the leptin your, your brain switches off from that perspective and actually then you continue to have cravings for food so even though yes it feels like a signal to, to your health there's actually physical cravings and, and physical manifestations that you might have got beyond beyond that you, you're going to struggle to come back down so just like you potentially have cravings for, for cigarettes when you're nicotine addicted it's it's somewhat similar it's not quite the same level of addiction but it's actually your body regulates itself like that which which is some topics of research from the medical community in terms of how we can medicate people to fix that and that's a that's a question in itself whether that's the right thing to do yeah i just wanted to add on to that talking actually and say that i think you're right absolutely like much like with say heroin addiction or addiction to other opiates within the pharmaceutical industry is you get very real physical side effects to these addictions. So it's all well and good saying, you know, fix the pain, fix the trauma, emotionally regulate, you know, understand your emotions. But whilst you're getting these real physical symptoms, there's that aspect of it that needs to be addressed. And I was looking at a research paper that was talking about medical interventions for obesity. And it said, suggested that one of the strategies was to actually increase self-worth and self-esteem of people um, because following on from what I said earlier, it's fundamentally the beliefs that we form and then from those beliefs, the coping mechanisms that we then go to. So if you can understand yourself and understand your emotions and then understand that to meet these human needs, you're actually using eating as a coping mechanism, right, well, what needs to change then? Okay, it's the beliefs you hold about yourself that need to change. So for example, if you feel I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm not smart enough, I'm not X enough. So you form all these negative, say, beliefs about yourself that aren't really negative, they're actually just messages that you can use. And then, you know, you understand that your coping mechanism then is to eat. So if you were to change the perception you hold about yourself, change the belief, then what you can do is actually increase your self-worth, increase your self-esteem and change it at a fundamental level so that you no longer need or that you or that you can begin to change these coping mechanisms. Because if you're someone that feels of high self-esteem, high self-worth, high value, you know, and 
perhaps then that you can actually begin to change that coping mechanism from eating into something else or say that you know because obesity you know isn't always a case of um say emotion saying that say in the instance that obesity isn't a case of uh low self-worth and low self-esteem say you already have high self-esteem you already have high self-worth you know and you are actually a very emotionally healthy person say then it would be a case rather of just education surrounding nutrition and other things like that so it could just be a case of looking at what you're doing you know your eating habits like celine said you know just what you do socially are you eating out all the time you know what are you doing socially like to you got what yeah so understanding your own eating patterns but i, I think, think that's there's that. Right, right. no i was literally just going to finish it off but by saying i think there is a striking um imbalance between intellectual intellectual awareness and slash behavioral self-control um so i think there's actually you know a massive cognitive dissonance because take a look at i've seen personally you know a number of doctors say and this is no attack on you talking obviously i've seen a number of doctors <laughs> that are just massively overweight and obese and you know if i'm sure they know full well about nutrition i'm sure they know full well this is actually that's me presuming there that they do know about nutrition but what they do know is all the effects of say obesity and being overweight yet they still you know have these poor emotional regulation and poor um habits and coping mechanisms despite their you know having a quite an advantage in terms of you know say being intellectually aware I'd, I'd argue there, Sean, that you might be making a bit of an assumption there because someone, someone who might be, say, a 50-year-old GP who is overweight, they might be more than happy to accept that they are overweight. They've got health consequences due to it. They might, from my perspective, they might have seen people living to their hundreds, dying of dementia and choosing, actually, you know what, I'm happy the way I live my life. I don't want to do a ton of exercise. I want to go home. I want to spend time with my kids and I want to die at 80 of a heart attack. I think some people genuinely have that kind of awareness as well. So you you could be emotionally normally regulated. I think it'd be I think it'd be unfair to say you're not correctly irregulated unless you're skinny or you're you, you fit one physique or something like that. I think I definitely know people who are more than aware that they're overweight. They'll make jokes about it, but they'll continue ordering that takeaway at work because yeah, they're, yeah. they're happy with that. Yeah. So um, I would agree that there was there was an underlying assumption there. So mm. to touch That's on the fine. point I made earlier, mm. it was, you know, people would say high self-esteem already and they feel good about themselves, you know, and they're just happy to accept the poor eating habits. Mm. You know, I think I think there is that category of people. Um, I think I was just touching upon the fact, really, just highlighting the fact that there's a lot of people that are highly intellectually aware, but still don't have the ability to emotionally regulate themselves and understand their own behaviours and, you know, be able to have self-control in some instances so i think yeah i was just really highlighting um the cognitive dissonance really there mm. between people that are intellectually smart versus people that are say um emotionally aware if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely celine you look like you're itching to get some words out <laughs> I, th I think it's just I think I'm just going to play devil's advocate here and actually mm. say we've spent a lot of time thinking about mental health mm. 
which I could talk about all day long. Mm-hmm. I love it. But at the end of the day, like we've been touching on the fact that, you know, you can be emotionally healthy and obese at the same time. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, and even when you are emotionally healthy, that doesn't necessarily relate to the behaviors you choose to enact. And I think for things like obesity, a key aspect of, I guess, recovery, if that's what you want to call it, is behavior change. So um, changing your dietary habits, changing your exercise routines, things like that. Um, And so it's not enough, I don't think, to work on someone's mental health. I think it's a really helpful step and I think it will encourage that behavior change. But mental health without the behavior change is going to make for a happy person or a um, emotionally regulated person it's not necessarily going to make for someone who is in a healthy BMI category so I think it's not something we've really touched on much about the behavior change. Sorry I think the behavior change what I was trying to get at actually and I'll just clarify this is that I think you're actually far far more likely to make the behavior change when you change the beliefs underpinning that behavior because you know it's it's like say someone who goes jogging five times a week to lose weight but actually they hate jogging so eventually they just give up so the point i'm making there is i don't think you can make a a permanent or more permanent behavior change until you do change the beliefs that underpin the values and beliefs that you formed to which lead to the coping mechanisms that have led to the say the eating habits and I think I would argue based this is just completely anecdotal from my own perspective I would argue that it is people that are emotionally unregulated and um, people that maybe have suffered in the past that tend to be more obese so I would say there's a smaller portion of the population that are obese and when I say obese remember that obviously overweight to a large extent okay I'm not talking about people that are just say a bit overweight I'm talking about people that are really on the other end of the spectrum I think that is due to poor mental health and the beliefs they hold about themselves that underpins that behavior it's so interesting that you say that because obesity isn't a mental health diagnosis we give to people at the moment um, and it begs the question as to whether maybe it should be but I wonder if right now we're pathologizing something that is a choice for some people not for everybody but some people like Talkina's talked about know the choice that they're making they know that they're obese and that's how they want to live and I wonder if we just again need to be kind of accepting that that's okay for people to make that choice if that's what they're kind of happy with and that's not to talk about the people who are obese and want to make a change or obese and deeply unhappy or psychologically distressed I think these are two different things though and I think we need to not be conflating the two together I think that's a problematic narrative about what's acceptable in body sizes and what's acceptable choices for people I think, I think one thing that's, sorry, just ahead, sparked, that's okay. one thing that's just sparked me now is the fact that modern medicine allows one to be obese for longer. Um, so if if you hit obesity at thirty and you have, if if you were to hit obesity at thirty and you were maybe one hundred and twenty years ago, you'd probably die at thirty because you wouldn't have the medications ready to to keep you alive for so long. So maybe that's permitting it as well, and that's why we've got numbers going up because we just we just keep people alive for longer. 
Um, yes. It's something, it's something I, I just thought of. Yeah, I just wanted to follow follow on from that quickly, just while it's fresh on my head, is that I think you're right, Celine. I think that I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm I think I need to be more careful with perhaps say my explanations or language because I, I wasn't trying to conflate the two. Because I think there are many different categories of people, and it's not all to do with mental health. So for the people that are happy, say being obese, I think you need to consider then really the impact that it has on society, and you know, should or at what point. Do you stop supporting someone that's clearly going to, let's be realistic, that's going to need to lean on the healthcare system far earlier than, say, you know, uh, average weight person that's, say, healthy, right? Because, you know, there's a number of, well, I, there's probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of statistics that you could reel off that people who are obese, you know, are at higher risk of developing certain diseases say you know coronary heart disease obviously the number one killer you know diabetes think, you name it do you know what i mean so it's like at what point do you actually then do demonize it at the same point or in, rather than demonizing it say okay yes it's okay for you to be obese but you know do we then as talkeen said support them through that i think that's a really slippery slope because you could say the same for people who smoke, people who drink, Absolutely, people yeah, who definitely. do all sorts of different um, things. And I think it's quite stigmatizing and quite shaming to those people. And I understand that it does come with a financial cost to the average person, especially in the UK where we've got an NHS. Um, but I do think that you, you are on a path to policing people's behavior and i don't feel comfortable with that concept i yeah, think from yeah. from my i wasn't just to clarify i wasn't actually right. saying that i was just talking about points of consideration rather than and i think it is a slippery path i think you're absolutely right and i wasn't trying to say that as a thing i was just trying to consider that do you know what i mean yeah and i think a lot of people have that perspective um I think that this is something that a lot of people hear, you know, this is something Katie Hopkins, I'm sure, has talked about before, um, about how, you know, smokers and obese people are costing the NHS and things like that. I think it's a popular view out there. And I think what that does is it perpetuates that stigma and that shame that yeah, already absolutely. exists in the narrative about things like obesity. And what we know is that actually if someone's stigmatised and discriminated against, it, it's only going to make it harder for them to work on their difficulties because then that leads to additional stress, additional mental health difficulties. So it, it's hard. And I do, I see your point because I think we need to be kind of thinking about to what extent should we be involved? To what extent should we support? To what extent should we accept? You know, to what extent do we intervene? And I think these are all valid questions. But when we start to talk about how people are you know and these aren't the words that you said but i think some people have argued things like that these people are a burden and i think that's where the slippery slope comes in yeah for sure i i've got to agree with that like nobody should ever be classified as a burden everyone is equally as loved equally as valuable irrespective of the way they look their size um their mental state or anything I, I i fully agree with that just an interesting point so from a medical imaging equipment perspective because that's where i'm um fundamentally working predominantly nowadays one thing with radiation and obese people we do have challenges 
when imaging obese people, I'm sure, Talkeen, you, you've seen many x-rays. And when we're looking at a lot of um, images from obese people who, you know, let's say we're x-raying or taking images in the abdomen or down in the pelvic region, and there's quite a lot of fat tissue, the, you know, and, and, and it's quite a dense area. So when we're using radiation to take images, the image quality isn't as good due to the way radiation works and how it interacts with all your cells and you get all this scatter kind of radiation going across. So the detail we get from from the images uh, is quite it's difficult to get good detail and therefore then it can be quite difficult to diagnose with these people uh, these type of patients when they are obese and and it's really interesting from an uh, uh, an image quality perspective or a diagnostic perspective when these um, obese patients come into the healthcare system and you know we know that they're more likely to have other health underlying health conditions or health conditions from their obesity and then we're also challenged with the equipment that we have available to us to diagnose them and it can be quite difficult to even provide that care when it comes to obese people and and having worked in the NHS it can be quite challenging. So for obese patients, you need like you might need a certain piece of equipment to move the patient from one trolley to the to an operating trolley or or to an X-ray table or something or, or you know, and and then if you have, you know, short staffed in the NHS, you know, there's not let's say it's a night shift. I've had this experience myself, been on a night shift and we've had an obese patient and I'm, I'm quite I'm a small you know small adult let's say small male I'm only five foot eight and me to move this like a uh, beast patient by myself who, who wasn't able to move they'd injured themselves and I had to try to on a night shift by myself try to move them I ran the risk of injuring myself trying to move this patient so I had to go again help and then there's not many people around this increases waiting time for other staff members so we do run the you know run the challenges in the any nhs with stuff like that talking have you had experience with with that yourself usually leave it to the radiologist mate <laughs> <laughs> that's no, where I, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, see, I see where you're coming from um, yeah i hundred percent i wanted to add on to that yeah. as well is that it's it's i think we there are real challenges to do with particularly hyperbariatric patients hyperbariatric just meaning like the extreme end of obesity and at what point like I said you know how do you go about accommodating every single person and mm -hmm. it seems as though we can in some instances because when they're that when they're that obese the equipment can't support the weight the image quality is not only lower it's actually really poor based on my experience we had significantly worse imaging so they might not get the same treatment that they that they may need so it's actually um having that that sort of knock-on effect and as itty said as well you know perhaps uh, on a night shift staffing issues you've got low staff and a hyperbariatric patient comes through you're faced with all sorts of challenges and just getting them from a to b and getting them onto the diagnostic equipment so that you can actually understand what's going on for them so but then at the same time you know say someone is i don't know 60 stone right i don't know how big the world's biggest person is you know and the 60 stone person says you know why can't you accommodate me like even though i'm 60 stone you should still be able to accommodate me and then and then they may i don't know this is all just theoretical and anecdotal say in america 
you know, and then they're like, well, I didn't get the uh, treatment I needed and I've got some problems from that. And they sued them because they're like, well, they should be able to accommodate me. You know, it's a healthcare. They should be able to do everything for me. So it's kind of like, you know, just understanding the risks associated with not even getting the treatment that you may need for being obese, you know, and, and understanding the the issues and impacts that it does have on the healthcare system. Yeah. So Sean, I think you, you've touched on what I think is, is the most important thing to really speak about. So we, we've talked briefly about sort of causes, potential causes of obesity, mainly from a mental health perspective. And it's been quite a juicy topic. We've just hit the one hour 10 mark. Um, but I think one of the, one of the main take homes really would be thinking about how we talk to people about obesity in terms of their risk. Risk is a word you've, you've just used. So yes, we can think about prevention and, and things, but we need we need people to be on board to understand why obesity can cause such an issue. And if they know what the issues are, what the risk factors are, and what the what, what the end outcomes would be, and they are like a, a 50 year old GP and they're happy to be obese and, and, and to deal with those complications, I think that's absolutely fine if they're fully aware. Um, but if someone isn't aware of the consequences of their obesity, then maybe that's where the problem is. Just like when we're trying to consent people to, to have the COVID vaccine more than happy for someone to refuse as long as they know exactly what the what the pros and cons are and I think that's the most important part um if, if you're happy being obese and you know what the outcomes are and you're prepared to take those risks then fair enough but if if you, you don't like the idea of the risks then actually we need to make sure people are adequately educated and then have have the support they need to to reverse it if they can really yeah I think I think just to disagree actually with one of your points mm -hmm saying that being on board is is the main key point i think actually the key point is the emotional intelligence and the emotional understanding okay. and because then you wouldn't even need to treat the obesity do you know what i mean because say if you were to you know well i think actually that's not necessarily true because perhaps if you were to get people you know on board would say risks but i don't think it's risks that mm. get people on board for things because you could say all day you know look at smokers for example they know full well that they're at a much, much higher risk for developing lung cancer, mm. but they carry on smoking. So I don't think it's knowing risks because that only promotes, say, an intellectual understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think actually when, you know, you look at success rates, I think this, I've read somewhere is that once they were to change and understand why they ever started smoking in the first place okay. and what beliefs they formed as a smoker, once you were able to change that, they were able to stop smoking much, much easier. And I do think it is, I think there's much more power in wisdom rather than knowledge. And by that, I mean, having a real understanding that's palpable rather than just knowing a random statistic about risks, because I think that that doesn't really promote the change. Um, and I think the fundamental change really is developing an understanding of humans and emotional intelligence and emotions and self-regulation because then you wouldn't say need to go to obesity at all. Do you know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. a number of things, not necessarily obesity, literally could you name it and bloody anorexia, obesity, um, X, Y, Z, other things that are formed from um, poor emotional self-regulation. Any remarks, Celine? I think I'm I'm just really curious about what people's ideas are on where we take this like what practical things mm. might we do to help support not just the prevention because I think we've touched on that but also the treatment or 
support that we give to people who are already obese. I was just really curious about that. And as well, whose job should that be? Is that a job for doctors? Is that a job for um, psychologists? Is it a job for teachers? I'm just really curious what people's ideas are on that. I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. I think, so why? As in, you need a strong, so when I'm looking at behavioural change, I'm looking from my personal experience, I've always needed a strong enough, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to change? You know, and if it comes to up to an obesity or even smoking, as Sean brought up, why do I need to change my behavior? OK, I understand the statistics. I understand uh, I'm running this risk. But, you know, just eating this food right now and feeling temporary comfort, it, it, I'm feeling good in the moment and I'm living more in the moment rather than thinking 20, 30, 40 years ahead. You know, it's, it's 20, 30, 40 years are big, big numbers. We can't, we can't even comprehend that in our, in our head, really, of, of what's going to happen in that many days. Uh, in that in that time frame so we need a strong enough why so I think that I, th I think a little bit of the question is how do we build a strong enough why in the person you know maybe if statistics aren't enough what could we empower them with for them to want change for themselves and fundamentally the people have got to want them I think we've lost you selling you still there I'm still there, yeah, they're frozen. Uh, the, the, boys are, the boys are gone. My question was, whose job is it? Oh. Ah. You guys froze are we for still about there? seconds. Yeah, you're still there. Ah, yeah. right, okay. <laughs> We're back. Yeah, so I was just going to say, bringing it to the practical aspects is if we start with the younger generation as well, so it doesn't continue into the next generation. So we start educating in schools. And then for the generation that's out there now who are obese and even the people who aren't obese, just to educate them not to single out people who are obese, then I think that would require education on this level. And whether that, you know, is, I don't know, if, do you remember back in the day they used to do like public service announcements or TV advertisements or something just to get the information out to people so people are more educated on that topic? Um, you know, and then when it comes to the healthcare system, again, educating everyone on that. And I think it's not one group in particular. I think this is a very societal thing that we all kind of, we're in this together when, whenever alone, you know. So anything, you know, if, if obesity is tackle, is, is an issue in today in, in society, then it's, a, it's an issue for everyone, whether or not they're obese. So even if the per if if let's say for instance myself I'm not obese however obesity is an issue I'm that I'm still a part of that problem because that problem's still around and obesity can it can happen to anyone really people people can get obese so family members friends so you know you really want to look out for just everyone in in general so I think it it kind of falls on to everyone in a way yeah. I think, yeah, to, to, to add on to what Celine said, she says, whose job is it? OK, so she said doctors, whose job is it? Doctors, um, say health practitioners, say teachers. I think it's all of the above. And as Itty said, I think it's everyone's job. And the only way I, I couldn't say, you know, who would lead the front. I think that's, a, you know, a different topic. But I think it's in order to change the stigma, say, around body shaming, which then causes, you know, the low self-esteem 
or then causes, you know, other issues which then, you know, lead on to things like obesity. I think it's up to all of us to educate ourselves and understand all of our own emotions and understand what we do to other people basically when we do shame them, when we do stigmatize them and understand that someone won't get better as long as we're stigmatizing them. You know, well, that's not necessarily true. That's, that's actually not true at all. But it makes it much more difficult for people to get through that process as long as we're punishing them essentially for where they are at right now. And I forgot to mention actually, is that there are cultures, I don't know if we're talking about the UK here, but I, I was talking about the UK, but I do understand that there are other cultures that see, and I know that UK is multicultural, but there are other cultures that see uh, being more heavy say, or say being obese is actually a very healthy and a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know why I just wanted to mention that at the end. But yeah, to answer your question, I think it's everyone's job. But who leads the front? Who stands, you know, who begins that? And who are the people that are kind of the pioneers in that? Or the main figures that support that? Um, I, could, I couldn't say. Um, but I think that people do turn to doctors and do turn to these people that they put on a pedestal. So it wouldn't make sense to not have, say, you know, doctors as one of the top people that are the most educated in this matter to then almost lead that front. Absolutely. Do you know, I've got an interesting point here. So yeah, yeah. just with what Sean said there, if doctors were to lead the front, however, if if there are doctors out there, you know, going back to how Talkeen, you said some doctors are you know, they're, they're, they are overweight, they're obese, and they're perfectly happy with that. And they understand the health implications, and that's their choice to be that way, which is absolutely fine. But this is, what if you've got patients who see the doctor as an authoritative figure, and they look to the doctor as, you know, oh, this person's going to give me advice on how I should be healthy. But then the image that that doctor's projecting with their the way they look pot potentially being obese you know may not match with what they're seeing how do you think that you know do, would would a patient take that like authentically or would they be like oh well you're telling me to do this but you know there's a disassociation between what i'm seeing and what you're telling you know what's your take on that i know for a fact most patients if you were to say, if you were obese yourself, so if I was an obese practitioner and I told a patient that their weight is affecting them, um, and I wasn't to say that in in a in a right nice way that a lot of doctors I think are guilty of doing so, it, <laughs> it would it would not go down very well. I think mm -hmm. it's 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 a really interesting conversation, the conversation in itself about the the image of of a medical practitioner and how that relates to their professionalism and and the advice they give um it's not the most straightforward answer really but i think generally if you're an obese doctor and you tell a patient to lose weight i don't think there's very much um very much behind that suggestion to be honest just as mm -hmm. if, if if you're a doctor who smokes and you've been seen smoking and you tell a patient to stop smoking you probably wouldn't yeah right well yeah i think to touch on that as well is say you are you know, an obese doctor and you're telling a patient, you're trying to educate them. If you can actually lead from and stand in your own truth. So if you could literally say to the patient, like, look, I realize I'm obese. I realize I'm telling you and giving you advice on how to change your weight. And they could lean into that and they could just recognize it and point it out 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That they could just say it and openly talk about it, and then they could have an open, honest discussion, mm-hmm. which actually could perhaps lead to a far better outcome because yeah. they could have an open, honest conversation about where they're at, what their feelings around it are, and you know, if they could understand it, you know, they might actually find better success with a, an obese doctor telling them to lose mm-hmm. weight because they can be like, look, you know, they they could come from a place it's not much less judgmental, much more compassionate. Mm-hmm. and open and honest and i think that could spark you know um a really positive reaction from the patient rather than it being the other way around yeah i guess the only other thing is if, if a patient's coming in saying doctor um my blood pressure won't go down with these tablets is there anything else i can try then actually the, the patient's asking for help there and, and one of the comments yeah. would be we can in- increase your medication or you know losing weight might help for you with, with what you want so if, if the patient's actually seeking help for a specific thing, then they might be more well, more welcome with the, with the advice, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's right. As well. yeah. Which yeah. would then lead on. Sorry, go ahead, Celine. I've already talked. Go ahead. Uh, I totally agree with what you said. I think it's how you say it, and I think mm. the authenticity behind it. I think it's fine to be an obese GP or whatever and say to your patient, look, I know I'm obese. I know it's hard to lose weight, but right now, you're on a path where you know you are at risk of x y and z i think that that's absolutely fine and i think it's the way that it's said so from you know people i know who've had these kinds of experiences with with doctors often what happens is they get this very defensive reaction to being told to lose weight because the way that they've been told it is is not very nice it's not pleasant it's not understanding and empathetic um, and I think that that's where the issue comes in. That's where the defensiveness comes in. That's where the, oh, but your, but your obese reaction comes in. So I think it also comes down to saying, you know, again, going back to the blood pressure example, if a patient comes in and says, doctor, my blood pressure is high, how do I get it down? If you were just to say, you're fat, that's where it's high. I think that won't go down very well. But if you said something like, yeah, you have a heavier weight to yourself and the the excess weight that you're holding is creating a bit of strain on your heart and that's what's causing it. I think if you explain where it is rather than just being your fat, you've got high blood pressure. I think if if you explain exactly what's going on, it sounds less judgmental and more factual. Yeah, yeah. To lean in on that, say, you know, say that it, it's the strain that the weight causes that causes your high blood pressure. But then also, you know, just if you were to understand as a doctor that say a majority in my opinion of people who are obese in the uk say where their culture is not that being overweight and obese is a good thing you know and that their culture is actually being obese and overweight is a very you know demonized thing i think if doctors were able to understand that those people once they see someone coming in who's obese they instantly were able to recognize perhaps this person has self-esteem issues perhaps this person has confidence issues perhaps this person is suffering mentally, you know, then they could really lean into that compassion and really, mm-hmm. you know, come at it from a place that's quite empathetic and non judgmental. So things should be, you know, I noticed that this patient's obese, right? What am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to be more compassionate, less judgmental with my communication, better at communicating with that person. Do you know what I mean? All these things should be triggering straight away as soon as that patient comes in for them. And I think that would be, you know, that would have to be implemented within the training of medical staff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it all comes down to understanding and education. And I think that underpins everything really 
is is just better education on you know emotional intelligence emotional regulation emotions in general because as i said they are just messages so yeah i think that would that's my stance on it <laughs> yeah so i like that so ooh, go, go on talking i was just going to wrap up mate so if you've got any other final final yeah, remarks yeah, yeah, yeah. i was just going to say so that's obviously if people come into the hospital mm. we're talking from a doctor's perspective um you know the teachers from the younger generation who who are going to obviously go to school and and learn about this stuff but then what about the people who maybe aren't obese but on that road and they're not going to hospitals they're not seeing doctors they're not seeing healthcare professionals they're not going to school because they're older now so how would we protect what what practical aspects could we use to get the message out to them about the health implications what tools could we use for them what just to have your thoughts on that i guess this goes back to what we were saying about just just tackling obesity as a, as a problem in itself so you know if if they've if we're talking about right now in this moment in time and someone's maybe just going above the the, the 30 30 pmi um that could be where you know there's advertisement campaigns out there just things that flag people up to to the system to say you can actually get some help with this. I don't know if you guys have got any more remarks. Um, but I think it just needs to be a, just a generic push on on understanding obesity and, and what can happen to it. And from from your guys, Sean and, and Celine's perspective, from the mental health perspective, if we can do more to make awareness there at this point in time. So if you're talking about in the middle ground where it's too late to prevent it, but too early to sort the complications out. I guess that's where the awareness comes from. And then that's where it's conversations a, like this are important. It's a societal shift, isn't it? And I think we as professionals need to step out of our ivory towers and actually meet people where they're at, you know, whether it's, you know, on social media, whether it's on the news or on TV, or whether it's in like posters in GP practices, those sorts of things are the things that, um, are actually going to reach those people who aren't in, you know, currently accessing um, specialist services. Um, I think that's that's what we need to be working on. Yeah, I yeah, agree. I agree with that as well. Yeah, I think yeah. To wrap up, you know, I think if you were to then go down this road of tackling the emotional intelligence, or understanding of emotions, the understanding of human cognition in general, you know then you wouldn't only tackle obesity but you'd probably tackle a number of other diseases as well mm. and a, number of, a large number of other problems so yeah that's my final yeah. thoughts I, I think nice. just as sean said there obesity isn't i don't see it as an entity in itself i think it's a domino effect from other problems that lead on to that or obesity leads on to other problems in itself i don't i don't see it as one entity which is just individual is very much linked to our you know emotional uh, social, uh, you know, what we're eating, how much active we are, nutrition and everything. So I think, yeah, it's all, it's a full circle. Lovely. Thank you. So, so like I say, just to wrap up, we've, we've talked briefly about obesity. I think it's definitely briefly, even though it's been one and a half hours, there's so much more to touch on. And we've, we've just <laughs> sort of started biting the cookie from the mental health perspective. Um, I think that's been really good. Um, we've, we've talked about how, particularly in, in the not to seven year old range, how, how experiences through there can affect our perceptions of self and how that can affect our eating habits potentially. And then going forward and, and thinking about how we could potentially prevent that or, or deal with the complications later in life. And, and thank you very much for your time, guys. I think it's been, it's been good fun.
Um, Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. No worries. You've been listening to Happy Healthy Hungry. Thank you so much. We'd love to hear your feedback. So please do email us at happyhealthyhungry at outlook.com if you've got any ideas, any comments or anything that you would like us to discuss in the future. See you again soon.